Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, April 14th. It was one of those rare days on the tennis calendar where the drama off the court may just have exceeded the drama we saw on the court. At this ATP 1000 level event we have this week in Monte Carlo. Now, there's been a lot of talk about trash talk and its place in the game of tennis over the past week. Certainly, that conversation seems to have inspired some of the actions we have seen throughout the course of the week in Monte Carlo. If nothing else, it's led to a spicy week of tennis for all of us fans to enjoy. And on tonight's show, we want to break down all of both the on and off the court drama we've seen unfold in Monte Carlo. We have reached the semifinal stage of the singles draw, and there's been some fantastic tennis. So, of course, we're going to nerd out with all of you here on today's show, but it's one of those rare occasions where we do get to have some fun with some off-court drama from the tennis world. So joining me on tonight's podcast in fitting fashion to help break it all down is a man you all know best as one of the returning champions of returning champions here on our Crack Rackets podcast. We have so many returning champions at this point, I have to specify who the real ones are. This is one one of those people, as you know him, as a co-host at this point of this mini break podcast. He shows up at least once a week. I am proud to say he invited himself on tonight's show, and I didn't want to bother him. So that was all the impetus I needed to have him. A man who taught us that, as Lisa Barlow once said, the only ethos in life you need to live by is you don't have to like me. I like me enough for the both of us. It's our dearest of friends and an editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel and Tennis.com. David Kane, welcome back to the show. Was the intro worthy of the occasion? To further quote Lisa Barlow, I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> it was spectacular. Even though you did make me wait until almost 11 o'clock at night, which I have to say, very unfair. It was an unfair thing of you to do. Mm-hmm. And second of all, <laughs> I have to ask you, was part of the reason why you didn't invite me on this week because we were in a little bit of a feud? I feel like there was a little bit of a, a little bit of tension over text a few days ago. I brought up someone who I didn't realize was an arch nemesis. And I was thinking, oh, I think he's hitting on me. And you were like, I don't talk about him. We don't talk about him. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I have hit a nerve. <laughs> well, I have a lot of different places to go off of that. First of all, there are like, Four people in this world who call me Alex. Like, I think my dad calls me Alex, but honestly, it's usually Alexander Scott. Otherwise, he's just kind of looking at me or addressing me. Um, my mom, hello, Alexander Scott, um, which I always love to hear as well. My older brother calls me A. The younger brother and I exchange all sorts of names. Like, the only people who call me Alex, my roommate Michael, who just does it because everyone else calls me Gruskin, so he specifies. And like, that's it. And so when you called me Alex on Twitter, I was like, "Uh oh, is he mad at me? But of course I knew you were just having fun with the drama uh, uh, that we saw this week in Monte Carlo. I will also add second things. The latest podcast you were on, our first third award show, which was a two-parter, all of you should go back and listen to because in my opinion, it's two of the rare mini break podcasts that actually hold up for more than just the day they were, uh, were, were recorded on. Rave reviews from the number one 
Critics the wrong word, but I mean that in like the broader sense of like reviews each and every episode. Laura Gruskin, my loving mother, rave reviews for David Kane from the first third award. So I just wanted to share that with you before we begin today. Like an honorary Gruskin sibling. It's, it's quite it's quite an honor. <laughs> yeah. No, um, she's like, I just I just love the energy David brings. Um, and so again, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. No, I could never be mad at you and On a day like today, I am grateful to have you because we have to record here. It is 1045 p.m. Eastern time, the Monte Carlo action well in the rearview mirror. Now, many of you listeners will probably hear this after the semifinals get underway. Oh, well, it's going to hold up because we got to talk about everything. That's unfolded this week at this 1,000-level event. Of course, shout-out to our friends at Tennis Point who afford us the opportunity to do so. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest equipment at the greatest prices. But it's one of those rare moments where to begin a show, I get to frame the question and the topics we explore like this, DK. What intrigues you more about this week? The encore drama we've seen where, again— It's been pretty good. Fritz is having his clay awakening, and I am in on the Fritzy-Poss moniker for that matchup. I just think it's cute. Um, Taylor Fritz gets his biggest win uh, of his career on clay courts, beating Tsitsipas today to reach the semifinals in Monte Carlo. Holger Runa looks like he's taken his game to a completely another level. You've got Andre Rublev doing his thing in the bottom half of the draw. Yannick Sibner continuing to establish himself, if not at the top of Tier 2, then maybe even the bottom echelons of Tier 1 on the ATP Tour right now. There's a lot of juice on court, but I ask you, what appeals to you more right now? The honor off-court drama and why? Who cares about what's going on on court? I could have luxuriated <laughs> in what happened today, Friday, April 14th, all day long. I was so annoyed to have had Soul Cycle in the middle of the afternoon because I just wanted to <laughs> camp out on Twitter and just share my memes and make my housewives comparisons because this was everything. And every time you thought it had gotten to a certain point, something bigger happened. You got the handshake from Medvedev. You got the first quote from his press conference, the second quote. Then you got the video. It was the my moment of the year we could shut down the season Sablank won the Australian Open Daniil Medvedev won the Monte Carlo press conference game it's over I'm calling it so I know I'm the host and typically it's my job to set the scene for what happened but part of the other reason we're recording this uh, so late it's not my fault it's the college tennis world's fault we had rain in Carolina pushing everything back and thus it pushed the start time of this podcast back Will you set the scenes for the listeners? Because Daniil Medvedev played Holger Runa today. And yes, some dramatic quotes came out of today's media session. But the origins of this conflict go back to yesterday's match between Daniil Medvedev and Alex Virev. I actually came on this show yesterday. And prior to all of the quotes coming out, made the case for why there's a multiverse, a parallel universe where... Medvedev Zverev is actually the defining rivalry right now on the ATP tour because there was like a two month span in 2020, early 2021, where these two could have taken a hold of the top of the men's game. Now they didn't, but I think there's a multiverse where that happened. Anyways, there's history between these two. They've now played 14 times. What unfolded in match number 14? 
Well, first of all, it will never be a new another Federer-Nadal rivalry, according to Alexander Zverev, <laughs> just because of how unlikable Daniil Medvedev is, according to Alexander Zverev. So we have to set that on the stage first. It'll never be a top-tier rivalry for that reason and only that reason. And second of all, I will say that this is, to set the stage, this is the second straight Masters 1000 event that Medvedev and Zverev have played against one another. And it is the second straight Masters 1000 that you can argue Alexander Zverev choked quite tremendously, you know, to lose that match. He was very much in control of the match in Indian Wells. Um, and as I'm saying that, I'm realizing that they didn't play for the second straight Masters 1000. They played at the second out of three. I wasn't so going to say anything, that but I love you That is something I'm anyways. going to have to update in my article, which we will get to in a second. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's no live editing. Me. That's good. No one corrected me. That's amazing. Um, that's amazing. I love that. That's amazing. Well, the Sunshine but, um, Swing is just one cohesive unit of masters we'll say second straight slow court masters 1000 sure. uh meeting in which again Zverev came in with probably a lot <laughs> of <laughs> a lot of emphasis on the fact that you know he's someone who's beaten Medvedev in the past beaten him you know in big finals and it seemed like this was an you know opportunity for him to really kickstart his comeback season after missing most of last year due to that uh quite horrific ankle injury sustained at the 2022 French Open semi-final and both times, and perhaps even more shockingly, you know, last night in Monte Carlo on clay, where you would think that Medvedev is at a severe disadvantage, being on his least favorite surface, no matter what you'll sit, no matter what you ask him, and no matter what happens this season, I think there are already a lot of journalists trying to get him to say, I'm learning to love clay, and he won't say it. To quote Hercules, I won't say I'm in love with my <laughs> least favorite service surface, because you know what? I still prefer the hard courts. And even though I'm winning matches, that's not going to change how I feel about the surface and the bounces and the fact that I can't slide that well. All of which to say three hours uh, rolling around like in the dirt, like a dog and Medvedev wins. There's some seeming, you know, issues through the match. He, he rips the, the stick, the, the let stick from the net. And they kind of, they seemingly have a bit of a laugh about that. And that's not something that Zverev ends up calling out later on. What he calls out is the fact that, Medvedev runs off court at 4-3 for a bathroom break. And at the time, he comes back, and I don't think anyone even thought there was anything to be made of that. And that's when, you know, the next morning, there were some quotes from Zverev. Well, that's where I want to interject, because I do have the quote now from Alex Zverev. And the question Which I woke was... up to at 7 in the morning. And <laughs> yeah, just immediately was... leapt out of bed and said, this is news. And I yeah. got to report on this incorrectly, apparently. No, you, it, it's a wake-up sort of quote. Absolutely. And the question he was asked in press, how do you feel after the match? And he starts off, shit, it, uh, that's absolutely clear. But it is what it is. But for me, it's very, very bitter that he's really an outstanding pl tennis player. We don't even need to talk about that. He's one of the best tennis players in the world, but he doesn't win with tennis. He is one of the most unfair players we have in the world. He tries to do everything when he's behind. He did it in Indian Wells. He did it here. I'm just extremely disappointed about that as an athlete because I take fairness and sportsmanship very, very seriously. Pause for laughter. And unfortunately, he has none of that. The rivalry we have is incredible. We've played each other so many times, 14, just so you listeners know. But one of the reasons why Roger and Rafa were so popular and the rivalry was appreciated all over the world was because they were always fair to each other. And unfortunately, you can't say that about him. And that's just a real shame for me as an athlete. Love that. I love how he brings <laughs> it back to like a double victimization. Not only is it bad for the sport, but it's also bad for me personally that I will never be able to achieve a rivalry that matches Federer and Nadal with Medvedev because of Medvedev and only because of that. It's 
It's a, I mean, it's, it's a wild quest. It is a journey of a quest. And let's hang. Let's be honest. Again, hanging over all of it, the fact that Zverev won the first set, served for the match up five four in the second, served for the match up five four in the third, had match point up six five, floating second serve return. He smacks a backhand return long. This match was grimy. It was gritty. It was slow. The conditions were perfect for Alex Zverev to earn the victory, and he didn't. And you could sense. That anger, that frustration, particularly for Zverev, who, let's remember, he's coming off of injury. He's still looking for that first signature result, signature win back. And in a day where earlier Lorenzo Musetti had beaten Novak Djokovic, certainly it felt like the draw had opened up. Now that window goes away. You know, you have a salty Alex Zverev, and certainly Tennis Twitter had fun with that. And typically that's where the drama ends. It isn't, though. And this is where things get fun. You mentioned, I thought I was going to report on it. That would be all. Part two is Daniil Medvedev's response, DK. And again, it gets back to this theme of like people were saying, let's talk trash. And you have the Tsitsipas clay in the U.S. quote. And then you have Fritz, USA clay on the day. Now you have Medvedev after his Runa match. He mimics the Zverev cold handshake with Runa and is mocking the quotes. Talk to me about what happened, your take on all of it. First of all, just to wrap up what happened on the court, I think had none of this happened, the big headline here would be that Alexander Zverev is looking very unclutch in big matches. I mean, he served for twice, and you feel less and less confident in his ability to serve out these matches. I'm pretty sure he got broken at love at least one of the two times yesterday, and then, you know, won four straight points in the tiebreak, had two match points, isn't able to close it out. So that's... That's its own issue. And then, yes, the quotes come out in the morning. We're not even sure what Medvedev's response is going to be. You could feel even before he takes the court against Holkerun, there's a bit of tension because he you know, calls out the fact that, hey, he served for the match twice. He probably should have won this match. And you don't know how much of that is to do with Zverev, how much of that is to do with his sort of contempt for the surface. But he comes out and plays Holkerun. He doesn't win the match. He's not even able to take full advantage of what you would hope would be a late scheduling because Holger Runa was meant to play doubles with uh, Taylor Fritz. That doesn't end up happening. They end up pulling out of that match uh, in doubles. So kind of a bit of a rough luck for Medvedev. I don't, whether he would have won that match anyway, I can't quite say. He comes to net. He does imitate the, um, the terse handshake that Zverev offered him the night before. Loudly calls uh, Rune unfair for the way that he played. And I think people immediately picked up on the, the uh, shade being thrown there. And I will contrast what's going on with Medvedev's Zverev quickly with what's going on with Sitsipas and Fritz. Sitsipas and Fritz feel very much an offshoot of the trash talk discussion that's sure. growing. I think this would have happened between Medvedev and Zverev regardless of what discourse was going on. I think this is, as we learned, you know, in the Medvedev press conference, Fairly personal. So I, I I wouldn't say, I wouldn't necessarily lump this in with the growing amount of trash talk. I think that, you know, Medvedev is not one to sugarcoat things. And I think regardless of whether there is a push for gentility or not, I think Medvedev would have said what he said and said what he said uh, in press regardless of that. Well, I have the Medvedev quote, and it's a long one, so I apologize here, DK. We'll get your reaction immediately afterwards. It's I'm going to skip the first two or the first paragraph But yesterday, referring to the Zverev match, this is now Medvedev, what the thing with the stick made him say this? Toilet, well, I wanted to pee. What does he want me to do? And let's take it step by step. So two all, no, three, two, I have like five break points or whatever. He manages to hold. And then I love that Medvedev throws in. He manages to hold. Congrats. 
Medvedev's just a gem. Like, God, this man, get him on a talk show. Um, get him on this podcast. Then I make the game 40 love for me. I go to the toilet. I lose the next two games. He's serving for the match, and he's saying I'm going to the toilet to make him play worse. Sasha is living in his own world. I already had like five players in the locker room coming to me and saying, come on, Daniil, why are you so unfair? And then it says smiling, so he's saying this sarcastically. Yeah, Sasha, when he loses, we can find maybe 25 interviews of him where he does say some strange things. Again, honestly saying like if guys like Casper, I don't know, Andre, maybe Karen, even Diego. So I call... So I had, let's call it a fight with him in ATP Cup. Honestly, I'm at fault, and probably he still doesn't like me the way maybe he liked me before this match. And I'm sorry that a guy like Diego, who's so kind and so fair play, feels like this about me. The reason I stumbled through that quote, DK, is because then Medvedev goes on to say, Sasha is not this guy. Sasha is not like Casper. He's not like Diego. He's not like Andre. When he says someone is not fair play, you're like, okay, great. Look at yourself in the mirror. And then Medvedev goes on to say, and I do think it's important to say this all. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much details. Just going to say we were never up. really yeah, close friends. Well, do you want to respond there? Because I again, the, the, okay, please. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say I would, I would highly recommend watching the press conference video because I don't yes. think as, 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 as uncanny like an impression that, that yeah. Brusque is doing of Daniel I could have done I an impression. I didn't. Because you really do need the sort of the, yeah, the ups and downs. peaks and valleys of mid, and I think it's it's why it's really good. Because when I first read it, there were some confusing bits there, specifically when he got into speaking about what was a disagreement between himself and Diego Schwartzman at ATP Cup. But I think what he was referring to is that if guys like Casper, Karen, Ka- yeah. Andre, and Diego were to say that he was behaving badly he would have more respect for that because he knows them to be players who conduct themselves with fair play specific. So, I mean, there are people and there are certainly Zverev fans who I've seen on Twitter pointing out that Medvedev did not behave his best in that match. He was, you know, reacting with the crowd. And he even mentions, you know, that the, the crowd was booing me at times and I'm not going to you know stand for it, but what Zverev specifically called out. And I think that's fair for us to leave it to that. Cause he didn't mention the other instances that made him upset. He specifically mentioned the bathroom break. And that fact that that halted his momentum or somehow was done to make him play worse. First of all, he asks permission of the umpire at 40 love as, as the quote, you know, explains, he runs off court and is back by the time umpire Carlos Bernardo sales time. So to suggest that this was some lengthy break a la a Stefano Sitsipas, for example, and obviously Zverev was famously the player calling Sitsipas out for that and trying to accuse him of illegal coaching in addition to lengthy bathroom breaks. It's not fair and and incorrect, just an out and out, you know, false equivalency there. And as Medvedev pointed out, Zverev came out of the bathroom break playing a lot better and was ready to serve for the match. So to, again, to suggest that this in any way disrupted his momentum is quite silly. And again, to talk about, you know, I think it's just very clear that within the locker room, Medvedev seems to be quite popular. You know, he had a good interaction with, um, with Runa at net, you know, certainly understood where he was coming from there references. The fact that he has about 50 close friends on the ATP tour, which is again, as a housewives fan, very Ramona singer as a birthday every year has her 50 best friends, not all of whom are always on the real housewives of New York city cast, which is always, you know, a bone of contention there, but good to know that he has 50 best friends (laughs) and um, (laughs) that he's someone who, you know, even though he has not always behaved his best and he's the first person to admit it, he, feels like when he behaves badly in a way that disrupts his opponent, hurts his opponent's feelings, he owns up to it and is ready to apologize. And I think that he felt sort of hard done by Zverev in this situation. Someone who, I, as you're going to explain in the next quote, 
he doesn't particularly care for or have a lot of respect for. Yeah, and I guess I'll get to that next part of the quote now. Um, but, well, actually, before I do, you talk about Medvedev's behavior. I guess let's have that conversation because you've sort of brought it up. Medvedev is a curmudgeon on court. And most famously, of course, 2019 on his way to that maiden slam final run when the New York crowd's booing him. He wins the match. He says, it's because of you I won this match. And I that- want you guys to know when you go to sleep tonight, I won because of you. It's the, it's the when you go to sleep at night for me that really is the first like harbinger of this is not just a curmudgeon. This is a creative curmudgeon. This is someone who reads people with a specificity and precision that is just sort of beyond the average tennis player, certainly the average ATP player. I mean, this is someone who is going to cut you to the quick, whether you're an opponent or a unruly spectator. And obviously he's also the one who said that it must be nice to be sitting in the crowd and just have no brain because you can scream and have no care about and just enjoy life. I wouldn't know because I don't have no brain. (laughs) Spectacular, spectacular stuff. Quick tangent, because the we, uh, when I texted DK, we were going to start late. He said, okay, this is perfect. I have more time to think of bits. The Medvedev impression, I'm going to give it an 89. It was good. It was a little too forceful. Like Medvedev is more like, I want you all to know. I got to work on it. I'm not well, there He was yet. yelling. He was like yeah, yelling but he was over like, the crowd. No, no, no. So... I want you all to know when you go to sleep at night, it was me. I won because of you. Like that wasn't good. I got to work. So on this it. is a little Lenin. We're getting a little Lenin, but yeah. we're, we're close. You, my French know. is my best, but uh, we don't have a French. We don't. We, I need a top ten French player on the men's side with well, an accent. Medvedev's got to speak more French. And then, yeah. then there, you, there you have it. Tu parles un peu, mais je ne comprends pas. Someone who does his oh. entire press conferences in French this week. Do we get out of this tangent? It's we can. We can figure it out. I suppose we could. We're close. All right, let's get out of it. No, so the Medvedev behavior. (laughs) Anyways, he gets animated. He obviously will get through moments. We saw it most notably that Davidovich-Fokina match in Rotterdam. Obviously, so much has happened since, but where he's given the thumbs up to his coach sarcastically after he loses the first set. And, you know, again, he is open with his emotions. He feels his frustration. I'm going to go ahead and give this comparison on the men's side. It's Murray-ish. In the sense that, like, he's a little bit of a perfectionist. He definitely lets you know when he's angry with himself. And there's a little bit of a, hey, I'm better than this. Like, and I want you all to know that I know I'm better than this and that I'm not playing my best. And to some, that may be a turnoff. That said, whether it's the celebrations, you know, he does the FIFA dive when he wins the U.S. Open. He is someone who's very candid in the press. That's the thing I I fear most. Why I'm pro Medvedev is this is what we ask for from players. We ask them to be candid. We ask them to be honest with us. And even if there are flaws, obviously, to some extent, there are flaws that are non-negotiable. Some would argue Alex Zverev has those non-negotiable flaws. But I think Medvedev's flaws come from a place of innocence enough that I am fine with the total package. Like, I am pro Daniil Medvedev. I think if there were more characters like him in tennis, the world would be a better place and again, that's why I think so many are leaning, I mean, other than the negative response so many have to Zverev already, which certainly factors into some of the backlash. I think that's why the response has been so pro-Medvedev, right? Is I do think at, on whole, Daniil Medvedev is well-liked. Yeah, I will say that to say someone like Daniil Medvedev gets angry on court is not a full explanation of what we have witnessed from him. And yes, I think... 
And I think when we talk about anger on court, we have to be specific of the kinds of outbursts that are possible. It is a spectrum. Anger is an emotion, you know, like like any other. Can I just say, this is why exactly why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because please do elaborate on this. This is very important. Yeah. I mean, there are many different kinds of outbursts. There are, and I think, again, to go back to my housewives, you can be scary angry. And there have been times when Medvedev has gotten close to being scary angry. Specifically, I would say the 2022 Australian Open, there were some instances with the umpire that, that perhaps were really as bad as we have really seen him with you know an official during a match. What we have seen from Medvedev generally this season is what I would describe as funny angry. This is someone who is you know still frustrated and not able to completely you know, eschew all negative emotions from a match, but he is someone who's been able to channel them in a way where he can get it off his chest. He's making the umpire laugh quite it's often. Sarcasm. When he's, yeah, it, it's he sarcasm. He uses sarcasm, which is a little bit darker, but it, you're absolutely right. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, but that no. to me is the word that comes to mind. He's very sarcastic on court. He he roasts. You know, yeah, he's someone who sure. I would love to see like do like if they had like a roast, an ATP roast at the end of the year, like I feel like he oh. would have. I'll write him five jokes specific- tomorrow. Yeah, he's someone who can really read the situation, read people, and just get right to the heart of it. As I said, with the you know whether it's an umpire, a player, and and that could be harsh, and that's not something that you like if you're on the other end on the other end of it potentially. But I think in general, he has really done a good job of winning people over by being someone who is self-aware, someone who can be introspective, someone who does, I would say, almost always apologize for you know a behavior that is beyond the pale immediately this is not someone who needs help in being guided towards an apology and i think all for all of his wins that he's had in the last couple of weeks that has really created a situation where a sort of a perfect storm if you will where talk about not being able to read the rooms varev is coming in as someone who is not very popular and trying to take a shot at someone who people are really starting to come around on and be endeared by so i think that's why you kind of have this sort of tropical storm of public opinion occurring on Twitter today. Yeah. Agree with everything you said. I won't lie. The first minute, all I was thinking is the first roast joke Daniil Medvedev would give. And you feel like he goes up there to accept his ATP player award. And he goes, I want to thank the greatest champion in our game. And then he goes, Novak's Djokovic. And then he kind of smiles and he goes, yeah, that decision really helped me out. Thanks. And he just kind of looks there and he smiles and he's just like, all right, there's joke number one. And we're off and running. Um, was that good? What does that get on the, on the rating scale? I gave your impression an eighty nine, so don't 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 be soft on me. I, know, I mean, it's hard to tell because he is generally quite respectful, and it's something that's he's true. Not, that's he true. hasn't really. That might be the line. a topic non non grad. Maybe uh, in twenty yeah. years, and, and like you said, I think the 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 read on the fact that it maybe if it if it does in fact help him win, you know, another yeah. hard court slam or something, maybe he would make that joke. But in general, he knows where the line is and he knows when he's crossed it. And I think that is something that you don't always get from most of the players. There are players who just sort of let loose to quote, you know, fifth uh, fifth place on this season's RuPaul's Drag Race, Lucia LaDuca let loose. I think that that's, it's not always something we get. And so we do get a lot of scary, angry moments from players and that turns people off. And then I think you then lump in perhaps the Medvedev with those players. And I think you really have to be specific what the instances are and determine them for what they are. Well, then that gets me to where I want to put the final bow on this conversation before we move on to the tennis that's unfolded in Monte Carlo. And this gets back to the 30,000 foot view. Is trash talk possible within tennis? Because let's be clear, it's a one-on-one sport. 
And every player can say, oh, it'd be great. I'd love if Trash Talk was in in our sport more. All right, well, A, you're either going to be the one speaking it or B, you're going to be on the receiving end of it. And you have to either figure out a way to take joy in that Trash Talk, have fun with it the way we've seen guys like Fritz and CT Ponce do so this week. Uh, obviously, it can very quickly turn into something like Medvedev Zverev where it gets personal, although, of course, there is more historical ties that – I don't think we need to Yeah, get because into we're not done yet. Account. We haven't even gotten into the personal ties. The fact that, you uh, know, Medvedev basically said, you want to mention it all? I will mention it all. Stop bringing up me and my wife in your trophy ceremony speeches. This is it, multiple times he has called out you and your wife, and we know each other for a very long time, and we go all the way back to our junior days. And Medvedev was very specific today in saying, I don't know why he does that because we haven't been friends like that in a very long time. And to be clear, this is not, you know, when when players thank the opponent's team, they don't say you and your wife. They don't say you and your family. They just say you and your team. Maybe if it's like a coach that they've shared in the past, they'll mention that. But I think that's a very key part of this. This is the first player to really, you know, kind of go there with Zverev. I think a lot of times players have really avoided that subject because it's a very uncomfortable one. And it goes back to the fact that, yes, they do go away back. And in fact, they also go away back even closer Zverev's ex-girlfriend, Olya Sharipova, they used to play doubles together as juniors. You know, they're still quite close friends. And so that is a very awkward part of all of this, is that if there was a side in which the Medvedev family came down on, I don't think it was pro Zverev when those allegations came out. And that very week that the allegations first dropped in 2020, Zverev made a point of calling out the fact that he knew uh, uh, Daria Medvedeva very well. And it just, every time it comes out, it is... Very awkward at best and at worst, a little menacing. It's just like, I know where you live. I know where the bodies are buried. It's just like a very strange thing to call out of someone that you know you're not that close with. And so it was, I think it was important for Medvedev to set the record straight with that, certainly to say, listen, I've never said this before, but he has done this multiple times to create the impression that we are closer than we are and we are not. And he's going to call me out about my behavior. And let me make it clear that if he's going to talk about my behavior, let's talk about the fact that you you bring up me and my wife all the time to make it seem like we're friends and we're not. And that's just like, it was, it was spectacular. Yeah. Well, the quote, I'm not going to go in too much into details just going to say we were never really close friends maybe only in juniors that's only him in his congratulations speeches saying something like he was friends with me and my wife which is definitely not the case since a long time I never said this so yeah it doesn't disappoint me at all but again if it's one week he's going to continue saying well I'm going to come in to, well if it, if in one week he's going to continue saying well I'm going to come to him in the locker room and say let's discuss what's wrong tell me I'm going to tell you and maybe we never going to speak again and we are going to be enemies or whatever but at this moment i don't care much i mean again we've seen it all in monte carlo this week and i guess this does get back to the thirty thousand foot question is trash talk well yeah (laughs) is trash talk possible within our sport certainly it makes things spicy for all of us fans for all of us observers of the sport to enjoy i just I mean, again, I know tennis players. I know these players. We watched in Breakpoint. Taylor Fritz was asked, are you the best American man? And he was like, well, I don't want to say anything because it's going to be perceived wrong. And again, players have to be willing. If they're going to be candid, if they're going to have some fun with quotes, they have to be willing to let fans have fun with quotes as well. And I just don't know if that trade-off is either going to be A, worth it, or B, even explored by these players. So 
Where do you lie in this conversation, DK? What have you made of this discourse about trash talk? Well, I mean, I brought this up on Twitter last week. I said, I don't think it's a coincidence that this trash talk discussion is happening so soon after the retirement of Roger Federer, the, you know, the moral arbiter of the sport for the last (laughs) two and a half decades, someone who brought in this era of gentility that was tranquility. That came right after an era of not gentility on the men's tour. I mean, Marcelo Rios was number one a couple of years before Roger Federer was. Leighton Hewitt. Leighton Hewitt of the come on fame. You know, the guy he invented come on. I mean, this is the, the men's tour wasn't always like this. And I, what I feel like we're seeing right now with the, first of all, the, the players are all being asked about it. It's not like they're volunteering this necessarily. But I think what we're going to see from trash talk in the way that it will be different than before. And as I said, I feel like the Zverev Medvedev situation would have happened regardless of his current discourse. We're going to see quote unquote trash talk between friends and players who are kind of able to take a joke and understand the spirit in which it's intended. I mean, we saw like, you know, on Jabor and Daria Kasakina, you know, sort of teasing each other, you know, they're, they're or players who are friends or, as well. I mean, yeah. Jabor is going to be the common denominator because everybody loves her. And I feel like, yeah, it'll be exactly. like you know, Sabalenka has a lot of friends on tour. Kasakina has a lot of friends on tour. I think like, we'll see a lot of like, hee hee teasing. I don't think like, I don't know if we're going to start seeing like a lot of like harsh stuff unless it's like real. I mean, yeah. I think with the Sitsipas Fritz situation, it's something where it was sort of like, you run the risk of this stuff coming off a little bit insincere in sort of a WWE sort of way, because like, no, it was cute. It was like, whatever they're having fun. No, it didn't matter, but I don't know if it's going to move the needle in the way that, Oh, tennis is radically different now. I think you'll just see a bit of more like maybe exo dynamic, you know, sort of, but it adds up. That would be my counterpoint is it's just the little things that start to add up. Like maybe now you actually watch through the signing of the camera because you're not getting exos in hearts. You're getting little messages or signals sent or, yeah. yeah. What what I will say about it, not to interrupt you, is just I think no, please, it's, it's uh, you're due. What is important about maybe these dynamics and these interactions is that we will start to learn more about the players in yes. a bit yes. more of an organic ish sort of way. I mean, yes. it may come off a little bit forced in some instances, but I think you're going to learn who's friends with who, who feels comfortable, you know, teasing the other player, and you know who's who's good at roasting. We're going to find yeah. out very quickly who's good at making these kinds of jokes. I mean, even between Sabalenka and Rybakina at, at Indian yeah. Wells, I'll make sure I don't or, lose to you again. I mean, they're friends. So how about Tiafo when Medvedev broke back again and Tiafo hits the ball at him during the drop shot or whatever at the changeover, uh, the change of ends at Indian Wells. And I feel like Tiafo could be one of the great smack talkers in tennis history and just having fun with it. And, you know, again, and he's maybe... someone who'll be able to get away with it because people, again, love Francis. Like, yeah, because no it one... comes yeah. from a good place because it is just in the spirit of the game and not personal. And, you know, I'll tell you what, there's even a little additional fire from Yannick Sinner, and that comes directly from a match he played against Francis Tiafo in Vienna at the end of the 2021 season. Gil Gross and I bring it up every time we play a match, uh, uh, we have a podcast and talk about Sinner. My whole thing is energy is good for the game. And trash talk, if nothing else, is additional energy brought into the atmosphere. And again, there will be times when it's a little cringeworthy. Like, again, Tsitsipas, you don't need to write a paragraph professing your pontifications on the state of clay court tennis within the United States. But, like, I don't care. It's fun. Like, let's enjoy one another. Let's poke fun. Let's get competitive. It certainly adds to... The, you know, again, I think Medvedev and Zverev now is probably 
I mean, I think beforehand it was a top five ATP rivalry, certainly one that if it you don't include Djokovic or Nadal, it's another match that now all tennis fans will view as must-see TV. And again, cracking the broader sporting conscience is a broader challenge for tennis beyond just spawning rivalries. But if trash talk helps spawn rivalries, if it makes, you know, like, again, everyone's looking forward to the next Holger Runa Casper Rude match, right? That's on a short list because there is some personal animosity there. It has to be like, like a fire. It has to be closely monitored, but there's certainly some energy in the game. I guess that's where I'm obviously pro it as a college tennis advocate where you do see smack talk. I'm all for it. Let's bring energy. Let's have fun. Sure. But again, I just think that we're we're talking about things that I don't know if Abstractly. you can necessarily count the Medvedev Zverev and even perhaps the Rude Runa stuff as like part of a trend because I just feel like that's real. <laughs> like those are those are some real beefs. And I also just want to make it clear that by no means is my takeaway from this situation that Zverev shouldn't have said what he said. He is yeah. free to say whatever he wants. Just like we are all free to comment on it. Like I think sure. that might sometimes get lost in the sauce here that like people are going to say, oh see the reason why no one's going to trash talk is people will get mad at the player and say they shouldn't have said that. Let me make it perfectly clear. Everyone is free to express their opinion in any way, in any medium, however they want to do it. And they just have to be okay with other people commenting on it. That's the only difference. But again, I think in an era where we are losing some of the sport's most memorable personalities, you know, players that people used to tune in for, now we're going to get a new slate of personalities, again, who feels comfortable making these sorts of jokes, taking these sorts of uh, risks, (laughs) you know, these sorts of swings, as it were. And I'm I think it's, I certainly think it's good for the, I don't think it's bad in any way, but again, I think it's, it's sort of an interesting conversation because I think on one hand you have sort of the teehee teasing and then also like the actual like feuds that are boiling over. And maybe that is a result of, you know, Federer leaving, you know, a Federer leaving the game, someone who would sort of tamp down those sorts of instincts of players being like, no, this is a gentlemanly game. I can't speak out. And maybe they feel, they feel free to do that, but I, it's, it's a strange dichotomy to sort of parse out. Well, even beyond the federal personality, it's the fact that the top of the game is wide open. There are a lot of dollars, a lot of value, a lot of commercial value as well at stake right now. Everyone's fighting and jockeying for positioning. It's a really fun time, in my opinion, to be a fan of the professional tennis world. Final thoughts on this go to you. Yeah, sure. That's a good point. It's a fairly open field right now, and I think it was different during the, you know, sort of, the, the the strictest of the big three era where maybe someone who was ranked number eight didn't really feel like they had a shot at winning Monte Carlo. Sure. And now they come in feeling like I have a shot at this and this is a lot more serious and I can really win this title. And, you know, if I have to say whatever I have to say to get in somebody's head, then I'll do it. So that is, that is also an interesting dynamic to be played because even though there are some really outstanding out of this world talents still at the top of the men's game, they're not as many of them and they're not always all at the same tournament at the same time and that just opens up a lot of opportunities for players you know who maybe wouldn't have gotten that same whiff well dk that's a look at all of the drama that's happened off the court but you mentioned winning big titles you talk about outstanding talent let's now look at what's happened on the court in monte carlo as we have reached the semi-final stage and I think there have been plenty of dramatic matches. If nothing else, I think plenty of significant results. And I know you never want to read too much into the first week of any sort of switching of the seasons, whether it's the first week of the hard court season, first week clay court, first week grass courts. But we've seen a couple of continuations of trends. And so I want to talk about our four semifinalists to 
end today's show. It's going to take a while, so it's not going to be a quick ending here, folks. But I went through order of most to least significant development. And I think the most significant development of the week is a guy whose stock you have been holding on to tightly since the start of this 2023 season. And that's the excellence we've seen from Holger Runa to start this uh, 2023 clay court season. And in particular here in Monte Carlo, I know he got the withdraw victory from Matteo Berrettini to reach the quarterfinals, but you look for Holger Runa straight sets uh, two and four over Dominic team. Then today, Got a little gift from the scheduling gods. Medvedev plays three hours versus Zverev. He's one of the first matches on the calendar. Uh, of course, Runa, again, was supposed to play doubles later. That's why that was the case. But Holger Runa, 6-3, He faced two break points in the match, fought one of them off. He's now faced four total break points through two matches, has been broken just once, has yet to drop a set, has won over 70% of his points on serve in each of the matches that he's played it's a stark reminder that for this 19-year-old, yeah, he won the Paris Masters indoor title, but the foundation of his pro success has come on clay courts. Won his first title on clay last year. Made his first slam quarterfinal at the French Open last season, beating Pass on his way there. That's a guy that's won four challenger titles on the clay court level in his career. And let's remember, he is still just 19 years old. That's a big number of challenger titles for a teenager he just looks so natural to me on this surface. And I think the biggest compliment I can give to Holgaruna so far through this 2023 season is that truth be told, yes, he's 16 and seven overall. Yes. He's one of the 10 guys to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage through this year, DK, but it feels kind of pedestrian thus far. And the fact that he's making top 20 results look so pedestrian at age 19 that feels significant to me. I wasn't all aboard the whole Garuna train, but watching the skill set, watching how casually easy he makes this game look, I understand how, why you feel like you do. I see it this week. I think it's been the biggest development. What have you seen from Holger? Well, I'm glad you see it because if you remember, I sold him for Tommy Paul last yes. episode. So I'm really regretting that one. I think I baited one. you into that. I think that was you a did. great move by me. Well, you boxed me. me in. Yeah, because yeah. it felt so obvious to, to trade out Curios for Fokina. And I just felt like, oh, I don't want to do, do that just because you told me to. And then I, I traded out Holger for Tommy Paul, who played like, I don't know, two matches in Houston. And because of the rain, he wasn't even able to play. I played one. Monte he Carlo. lost to Hanfman first round. Didn't he play? Did he play two? I think he played one. I think he won a match and then lost the second okay, one. Okay, either way. I remember being on. like, oh, here comes the title. He won his first <laughs> round. Whoops. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, that he's going to play Yannick Sinner next because I feel like if you were to put, you know, Sinner, Runa, and Alcaraz on a spectrum, it's sort of like Runa is like built like Sinner but hits like Alcaraz. Like it's sure. sort of like this weird combination of the two. And yeah, I mean, I certainly was a late holdout on the Runa Express, mainly because of the physical issues. I mean, this is someone who would regularly cramp in best of five matches. And, you know, that's something he was able to really fix last spring, just in time to make his first uh, Grand Slam quarterfinal. You know, he set the bar very high coming into 2023 because he won his first Masters and beat Novak Djokovic in the final. I mean, that's one of those, you know, statement you know, milestone moments in his career that is going to be pretty hard to top until if and when, you know, he makes a Grand Slam final or something bigger than that, because 
that's a pretty big headline. You know, whenever he comes on court, he's the guy at night, you know, as a teenager wins his first masters over Djokovic. And so, yes, even though he is, you know, on a new plateau, it has felt a bit like a plateau the first three months of the year, because it's been good, but not great. And this time last year, he wasn't, he wasn't much good, <laughs> you know? But I just disagree with you because it's the shift of the Overton window. It's just like now we expect top 20 results from an Well, that's what I'm saying. It's it's a new plateau, but it was a plateau that yeah, he but was I, on coming into You know week. what it is? And we're into this it's podcast, a higher plateau. Steve, So maybe it's just listeners know we took a quick break there before we got into the tennis, a little look behind. He took a curtain. bathroom break, ladies and gentlemen. He didn't yeah. ask the umpire. And you drink. Look, I'm not a coffee ruin drinker my momentum. because energy's not an issue. The other issue with coffee is it just runs right through me. And anyways, we'll leave that there. Something that we all needed to know, but go on. For, yeah, it's, <laughs> I, like to, I want my listeners to know me. I don't need coffee. I'm au naturel most of the time. I, I view it as performance enhancing. It's a substance. It's 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 just saying I don't I feel dirty when I use it for broadcast. Um, anyways. For a 19-year-old to be considered a firm top 20 stalwart, that just doesn't happen in our game. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about the physical issues. We had the chance to interview him before the start of the 2022 season podcast. I think it holds up pretty well on our Cracked Interviews podcast feed. And I asked him about the cramping. I asked him about the serve, the forehand, which at a time at the time were issue, but he hit so aggressively now. And for someone who has such a good backhand, I don't get why he runs around it so much, but the way he's hitting his forehand so aggressively, it's worth it. Like it, it's a trade-off he's more than capable of making. Anyways, all that is to say, it's so clear how far he's come physically because he can find that forehand so much easier because he's clearly stronger and more assertive with uh, his weapons on the court. And here's the other disclaimer, which I've said before, but I'll repeat once again. He's 19. Like, Novak Djokovic was cramping when he was 19 as well. These were the issues. He had all these physical problems. Then he turned 23 in 2021, uh, 2011, and it was never an issue again. You know, Holger Runa doesn't turn 23 until the 2026 season. He's got plenty of time to work through these physical issues. For me, it's, again, the underlying skill set. The fact that you look analytically, and I get to bring up the clubs because I know you love them. Holger Runa, again, right now, is one of the guys who ranks top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Just eight players you could say that about in 2023. He was one of 14 guys to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage during the 2022 clay court season. And you see that statistical success on court. I mean, go watch him against Medvedev today. Medvedev couldn't hurt him. The constant depth of Medvedev into that backhand wing for Holger Runa didn't do anything because Holger can be so unpredictable, can hit the backhand line, can drive through you with the backhand cross. He deployed excellent drop shots off of both wings throughout the course of today. He closes the net well. He slides into his shots. And that was the dichotomy was so clear. I would say, what's the difference between a good mover and a great mover on clay courts? Good mover slides out of the shot. Great mover slides into them. Holgaruna slides into his shots, and it's just so fluid and so impressive. And he is still just 19 to come full circle. I just, like, too big to fail is a tough moniker to give to someone, but I just see too many skills. Like, he, I, if failure is defined as, well, he won a, a ma- uh, Masters at 19, so he has to win his major title in his career, otherwise it's a failure. Like, if that's the standard you're setting for him, then yeah, he could still fail that. But if the barometer for success is that of a normal human, which is he's going to make a lot of money 
playing pro tennis for a really long time, and he's probably not going to need a second job in his life. Like, that's what you're chasing as a 19-year-old, and I'm ready to put him in that tier. And I, like, I, I wasn't there beforehand. Sure. I mean, and you talk about the first week of the clay swing, maybe, maybe or maybe not being as important. Over, I do yes. think, I do think he needed a week like this, you know, to reassert himself as that, yes. Yes. you know, contender guy as opposed to a top 20 stall award. I think he had sort of slid back from, you know, this is someone who's going to rival Carlos Alcaraz to being someone who's, you know, hanging with the crowd, hanging with the the pack, but not leading it. I mean, this is now a, a result, you know, first Masters uh, semifinal on clay, momentum that he can take into Madrid and Rome. Again, as we said, I think his best surface will in the, in the short term be clay based on what we've seen him do, you know, to win his first title, to make the quarters at, at, in Paris, you know, he's clearly, as you said, very comfortable on the surface. And this, uh, this sets the tone. I mean, when we're seeing someone like a Casper Ruud struggle, you know, that's what, you know, what we're dealing with perhaps with Novak Djokovic's injury, Rafael Nadal's injury. We never know how healthy Carlos Alcaraz is at any point in time. I mean, this could be a pretty big, uh, another statement moment for Runa if he wins this title and really kicks off the clay season as the guy to watch. Because I think, if he wins it, if Sinner wins it, that's a pretty big moment to kick off this clay swing. Mm-hmm. No, a coronating moment. I also think Taylor Fritz belongs on that list in terms of a coronating moment. Here's why. Clayler Fritz? Uh, um, no, I like Fritzy Poss better. But coming into the week, Taylor well, Fritz. Well, half of them aren't there anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Taylor Fritz, 34 and 33 in his career at the ATP uh, tour level coming into the, excuse me, across levels in his career coming into it on clay. Uh, you look for him at the ATP level. He was 25 and 24 overall on clay courts coming into the week. Makes the semifinals here in Monte Carlo. It's his most significant semifinal on clay of his career. I know he's going to be really good on grass courts. Wimbledon's where he made his first, second week of his career. You know, Taylor Harry Fritz actually came to the attention of the tennis intelligentsia when, as a 16-year-old, he made the Junior Wimbledon final all those years back. What was it, 2013, 2014? I think it was 2014 because Ruben beat Kozlov in that final. Anyways, nerd out. Shout out Colette Lewis. Uh, But I know he's going to be good on grass courts. He's an Indian Wells champion. We know he's good on hard courts. I don't know if he can be top 10 on clay. And watching him play this week is the first time I've ever thought to myself, oh, my God, like maybe he can be top 10 on clay courts. And even if he's not top 10, he certainly looks like he could be top 25 good. And if he's top 25 good on clay and top 10 good on the other surfaces, that's a top 10 player in the world. Like that's what it case. You just can't have a weak spot in your resume. You got to be consistent all year long. And for Taylor Fritz now, who's into his eighth semifinal in the last 52 weeks, he has been as consistent as any player on the ATP tour over the course of the past year. And obviously analytically, he's going to be a darling 49 and 20 over his last 52 weeks. DK, what's different? Like, I mean, it, it sounds like an easy question. I've got my thoughts, but I'm curious. Did you believe in this? Ta- we would see this Taylor Fritz on clay. I mean, it's not just like casual wins. Stan played well in his straight set win in round number one. Yuri Lachetchka is one of the rising guys on the ATP tour, has real weapons to stress the we- uh, the movement of Fritz. He gets through in three sets. He just outdoes Tsitsipas from the start, two and four today to get to the semifinal. 
I didn't know Fritz had it this in him. Did you? No, not even in, in the best of times. And he wasn't coming into the clay court season in the best of times. I mean, he talked yeah. about feeling like the top American in break point last year, but 2023 has been very different. He was coming in sort of having lost a bit of his momentum, wasn't able to defend his Indian Wells title, you know, has not played outstanding tennis. And were it not for the Medvedev press conference, however, I think, uh, Fritz would have had one of the better uh, transcripts of the day, particularly the uh, the quote about green clay, because obviously yeah. uh, U.S. men stereotypically or U.S. players tend to play it more on hard true than red clay, which is, I think, a, a larger point that Sitsipas was perhaps making with his camera lens statement. But when they asked him about it, he's like, no, I hate a green clay. It was the worst. I felt so much better being on red clay. And he, you know, did make the junior um, French Open final in 2015. He did make the Wimbledon semi the year before, but I wasn't paying attention to it before that. I, we, we we do junior finals, anything short of that. I'm a little bit foggier on, but he, you know, against Tommy Paul in 2015. And we're starting to see what I think is even more interesting about this is sort of the fact that the U.S. men are turning out to be for real on all surfaces I they're just good let's they're say it. now we yeah. are we can say we because we're both americans this is not biased journalism we are just good like american men's tennis is good at tennis again we say it with a level of humility that comes from shock but it is yes. a fact now it's it's weird yeah. like i it's really they're for real now on all surfaces they're contenders now at every big tournament you know whether it's even you know what tiafo was able to do in houston although obviously the clay there is a little different than than the red clay in europe but still i mean now we're seeing what fritz can do you know in monte carlo which is a fairly similar conditions to paris and and tommy's a junior french open champion yeah, I mean, this is this is looking like, you know, we're not going to potentially have that, you know, three to four month break that we thought we were going to have in the American men's tennis narrative. Now we can be following them into Paris. And again, with the, with the situation being what it is on the men's tour, with Djokovic's elbow injury, with Nadal not coming back to Barcelona, you know, with Alcaraz missing Monte Carlo with his injury. I mean, this is... It's a wide open field now. And, and for, for Fritz to potentially be coming out of um, the last... 14 months with two masters on two different surfaces. That'd be pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, how heavy he hits the ball on this surface. So I'm going to nerd out. It's incredible. Like just the depth and the heaviness of his ball. You could tell Tsitsipas just didn't have time to to get into his forehand swing to dictate in the way that he wanted to. Fritz was able to pick on that Tsitsipas backhand return, even when Tsitsipas does have more time on these slow clay courts. I also think... You're going to like how I phrase this. Fritz's hand skills from the baseline, they're immense. Like his ability to get outside the ball and really accentuate the angle that he's trying to create and how he's able to differentiate that sort of ground stroke with his hands versus his ability to drive through the ball when lanes create themselves, uh, when he creates lanes of attack for himself, his ability to attack the corners on serve, whether it's the slice wide on the deuce or perhaps most notably that kick wide on these clay courts is devastating. He then just has a wide open lane to attack and you're sprinting so hard to cover that space that now he can hit behind you. I also think because it's so hard to recover on these clay courts, the fact that his drop shot's horrible. It's, you know, again, the drop shot, the volleys, it, it's the last missing piece for Taylor Fritz. You don't have to be as good on these clay courts because as long as you do the right thing, it's so hard to recover. 
that it's a little bit more forgiving on those drop shots, on those hard courts. And so I actually think Fritz is 3% more effective in those shots, 3% rough actor, uh, estimate uh, as it relates to this surface. He's moving better. He's still a guy who slides into his shots, not out of them. But three years ago, he couldn't slide at all. And so that's continued progress. Like, just, it's the top spin he can generate. Like, that forehand on this surface is nuts. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... You and the movement's it good enough that he can do it now. Yeah. No, I mean, he's someone who is physically, you know, when he's in shape, has generally been one of the better athletes in the last couple of years. Someone who has All right. shown a tremendous... I have to interrupt you. That is crazy. He is not a good athlete. He is a well, maximized no, I... athlete. Like, oh, okay. I actually think he is in... No, no, sorry. Here's what I mean by that. I think he does a better job of staying in shape 24-7 than just about any player not, you know, he's, it's not the same tier of athleticism, but in terms of, am I in the best shape possible? He is in the Medvedev Djokovic category of like, yes, I am always in the best shape possible. And he's just maximized the fact that like, look, you're six, five, like your frame can help you do things that normal humans can't. And it's a credit to him, to the pit bull shout out to Detroit country day, high school, Michael Russell, um, yeah. Anyways, sorry. I just this is a topic that like one of the first pods we did at Crack Rackets 2017 was the Next Gen American series. Holds up. You should go listen to our early work. I think you'd laugh. And we did it on all these Americans. And like the biggest question for Fritz was, can he be a good enough athlete? Because tennis has never been a problem for Taylor Fritz. He is now a good enough athlete. Yeah. I mean, I should have specified. I meant just like as a physical sorry. specimen. I mean, just triggered who's me. like bionic i mean the fact yeah. that he was able to recover from that you know what seemed to be like a lengthy you know knee injury even what he was suffering from last year you know after wimbledon you know he's someone who recovers quickly and it seems to have either you know just good good genetics or just someone who's got a really good routine which you know maybe someone even like an alcaraz could could take some heed from because you're seeing alcaraz continuing to struggle with niggles here or there and 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 Fritz hasn't generally had those issues. So that's 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 really more what I was speaking to specifically. Yeah. But in general, yeah, I mean it's this is not something I expected from him and for him to be to have certainly a quite a good shot of making this final, given his, you know, recent record against uh Andre Rublev, I would think that that's uh something to really be impressed by. Well, that's where I want to go next. Let's talk about Andre Rublev because we've had the center conversation so frequently. We'll wrap with it quickly. I made a joke to Gil Gross last year, one I'm particularly proud of, and it's it's a, it's a backhanded compliment. But I think Andre Rublev's destiny is to go one and two at tour finals for the next seven years consecutively, and just be that guy in round robin play who's like, oh, he's six, seven, eight in the world. He's in the dance, but he's not in the inner oh, circle at, of the dance. One and floor. two at the tour finals. Yes, at the, at the tour, tour finals. finals. Literally one and two at the tour finals. Round robin play. Be one of those guys who's there. He's into a semifinal here, Monte Carlo. Second of his career, fifth 1,000-level semifinal of his career. You look for Andre Rublev here this season. You know, again, I think he's been probably the best accurate, uh, the most accurate depiction is good, not great. You look at the record for him overall, 16-8. and eight. You know, lost to Djokovic in the Australian quarterfinals, but lost pretty definitively in straight sets. Loses to Medvedev in the Dubai final, but again, pretty definitively there. 
losses to Sinner, Nori in Miami and Indian Wells. Neither bad losses on the surface, but both of them straight set losses, which certainly would not have been what he was looking for. He's been fine this year. And, you know, you look for him statistically over the past five seasons, his or four seasons, his hold percentage between 84, 86%, although it has regressed the last four years. Similarly, the break percentage for him has also regressed the last four years. And yet he's perennially one of those guys in the top 25 club, never elite in one category, but always pretty solid at everything. You know, his serve, you know, his forehand. What do you make? I don't think we've ever had the Rublev conversation. He turns 26 years old this year. This is essentially the Andre Rublev prime we're living through. And again, if the barometer is this job will be the only job you have in life, I think Andre Rublev's well on track to get there. He's made slam quarterfinals. He's always in second weeks. He's making, you know, a million plus a year, if not more, when you add in sponsors, etc., But if the barometer for him, and he's a former Junior Slam champion, and he's just sniffed and hovered around Tier 1 for so long, can he ever get there? I don't think I've ever asked you that question. Semifinals here this week, you know, was up big on – was up a set and a break on Struff. Struff breaks back. He gets through a set and a tie break. I don't know. What's your Rublev take? My Rublev take is that he's really hit a ceiling, and – I don't think a week like this is enough to say that he's broken it. He would have to win this title to really break that ceiling. And I think we contrast the way that Medvedev, his very good friend and uh, seemingly now godfather of of Medvedev's sure. child, allegedly, <laughs> I think that seems to be sort of confirmed. I think he referenced it in a, in a video for the ATP this week that, oh, we're family now. Um, but I think Medvedev has been able to channel his frustrations, whether it's through his humor or through his sarcasm. And Rublev is very aware of the fact that he lets his emotions get the best of him. And, you know, sometimes you can almost be too aware of your weakness. And when you feel it coming on, maybe that causes some of these, you know, mental meltdowns. You know, he was able to hold it off this, you know, this week against Struff, but that's Struff. You know, can he do it in the semis against Fritz? Can he do it in the final against Sinner or Runa? I mean, that's going to be a totally different challenge for him. Because, yes, he's perennial, you know, as Joe Conta used to say, you know, he's always giving himself a chance to succeed. He just hasn't taken advantage of really any of these chances. And he's become kind of that guy who is, you know, he's the footnote on everyone else's, you know, fairy tales. You know, he's someone who is like that they beat to win their title. And it's a good win because it's Andre Rublev and he's so talented and it's in the quarterfinals and Rublev had his chances, but the other guy wins and goes on to win the title. Isn't that great? Or it makes the quarters of semis of a slam. Isn't that wonderful? And so that's sort of the, the unfortunate place that Rublev finds himself in. And he's, you know, a nice guy, someone who people really enjoy and are, are friends with, but he's someone who really needs to figure out the mental side of things. And I, I don't know if he's close. I mean, it's, it's, Hard to tell. I mean, he's certainly stabilized at the at the majors and, and masters this year, but it's still on quite again on on very much a plateau. So I don't I don't know where he goes from here. He he would really do well to do to have a really great week here. He has certainly the talent to beat the three guys remaining in the field. It remains to be seen if he can do it. Serve. You know what you're going to get when he lands that first serve. The first forehand combination could be ruthless. He's gotten better with his backhand, better depth generated now. He's a more comfortable volleyer. He's become so much better as a mover throughout the course of his career. But you're right. The frustration is just so evident. And it's funny. I feel like he 
is the less glamorous version from a results perspective of a Berrettini. Like Berrettini has the Wimbledon finals. So that's really what we know him for. But if we look big picture, like I'm going to ask, if I ask you right now, who's had a better career, Berrettini or Rublev? Who do you who do you answer? Isn't that a fun debate? I mean, it really would have been Berrettini by like a mile, but I think sort of from a longevity perspective. Because he's it, always there. Rublev yeah, I mean, uh, racks up the match count just to keep going. Sorry, I asked you a question, but I'll keep talking through it anyways. Yeah. Last six years, 55 matches. 50, uh, excuse me, 45 matches, 55 matches, 51 matches, 78 matches, 71 matches. And based on that longevity, I think we've achieved more than he even has just because he's yeah. always he is always a factor. He's always talked about, you know, in these Grand Slam Masters conversations, you know, even if a Berrettini has perhaps achieved a little bit more, you know, cumulatively, he's done it with a much smaller sample size. But um, yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting debate because they are sort of. Yeah. Fairly well, even. They average out in a weird and, way. And I think for Rublev, if you're looking at careers to model, you look at Jessica Pagula and like what she's done over the past 15 months. And you're like, how do I get that extra leap? Because you're, Pagula just felt like she had maximized everything. And yet she found another way to get a little bit more aggressive, to get a, li- a little bit more dynamic, I would say, more than anything else. And I think that's kind of what Andre Rublev needs also is just to find a way to get a little bit more dynamic. I agree. Even a title run this week. It's the first week of the clay court season, so I wouldn't rush to crown Andre Rublev a breakthrough on the precipice of Tier 1. It would certainly be a moment for him mentally, and I want to see how he capitalize on it. I'm holding firm. This would, It would be stockhold with me for Andre Rublev. He's like your tier clear-cut definition of what Tier 2 looks like on the ATP Tour. It would be a conservative buy, I think, if okay. he wins, because that would be a pretty big shift for him to be holding that winner's trophy at a big tournament i mean again you'd want to see him do it again and how soon could he do it again and how i mean and maybe you think because of his demons mental demons and you know his search for inner peace as he referenced in that really adorable video with grieger dimitrov that i highly recommend everybody watch their their chemistry is really electric and i hope those two boys i wish that i wish nothing but the best for them i feel like they have a really great future ahead of them but um you know i think if he gets over that hurdle, it may be that much easier to feel like, okay, I'm getting nervous. I'm getting frustrated, but I have proven to myself that I can overcome it. He hasn't proven it to himself yet. And so I think that really does play on his mind. And the more times you, you know, fail for the same reason, you're that much more cognizant of it when it starts to creep up on you. It's just, it's sort of that, you know, repetition, you know, practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent. Yeah. Perfectly said. Well then last topic, and we'll do this one quickly. Yannick Sinner, we've talked about him a lot on this show of late. Any changes for you? Any thoughts on him for this week? Another semifinal? Just just again, Indy. I think he's the first other than the big four, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, to reach semifinals at Miami, Indian Wells, and Monte Carlo to start a year. Where are you at with the Sin man? I mean, some idiot, I can't remember who, said that he was right there and was just right on the precipice of these sorts of results. I can't remember. It'll come to me. But, um... Some guy I know thought he was already there. I can't remember. It's just, it's it's really (laughs) escaping me, but um, you know, listen, this wasn't the toughest draw for him this week, but you know, he is playing very well and and (laughs) generates a lot of power off the ground and, you know, has really fairly flawless technique is seemingly getting a little bit stronger. He's not quite as bean poly. Okay. Hold on. I'm glad you said that. His bicep has a vein now, right? I'm not crazy. Like, I I literally, I texted a person who has come on this show who will remain nameless because I don't know if they'd want to be named about this because we talk about it pretty frequently. 
he he has a like I can guess. He, no, I don't think he can. That's why this person's oh, remaining God. nameless. Um, he has a bicep. Like he, it's real. He's a, he's a little thicker now. I mean, he's not quite, I mean, like, I feel like Holger, Holger Runa maybe has a little bit more definition. Like, he's even gotten a bit stronger. Like, you're seeing uh-huh. these boys kind of grow up a little bit. It's, it's, it brings a tear to the it's eye. It's cute. But, um, it is. Yeah. You're so right. Yeah. It's, they're, they're growing up. But I think it's, um, it's important to see him kind of, you know, move over that threshold because I certainly was very frustrated. I've talked about it at ad nauseum that I was really waiting for him to make this breakthrough. And, you know, even if he still hasn't won the masters yet, he's proving to be more consistent at these bigger tournaments. You know, he got the win over Al- over Alcaraz in Miami and he is, you know, potentially putting himself in position to make another masters final on clay. And we know what he could do on the surface. I think this is, again, some, I'm really looking forward to seeing the Sinner Runa matchup. I think it's going to be really cool. And yeah, I am. I just needed to see it and I'm starting to see it a little bit more. And so I think that's, that's a great, you know, turn from where we were a couple of weeks ago. Fritz Rublev, Sinner Runa finals champion. Who you got? Um, let me think. Are are they going to go the, are they going to go the uh, doppelgangers Rublev versus Sinner? And we'll just use one picture for the final. <laughs> the, the ginger final. Yeah. Um, ben I Rothenberg's mean, dream. It's it's tricky because uh, I mean I feel like if I'm if I'm asked to pick what was I mean it was really impressive the way Holger Runa was able to just sort of have his way with Daniil Medvedev in the quarters. It really was. You know, Sinner was equally, if not more, efficient against Musetti, but Musetti's coming off of that you know big mental win over Djokovic. So, you know. Both of them had pretty emotional victories, but I think, you know, I would probably put more stock in the Medvedev win and I don't know. And Holger has, you know, done it, you know, at these, you know, masters, you know, won the big titles. So you maybe give him a little bit of an edge and it's very hard to pick Rublev to win these big matches still. So you kind of feel like it could be a Runa Fritz final and, and Runa wins the title. Wacky, mm-hmm. making me really angry that I, um, sold your stock. Sold oh, stock. okay. This is, I mean, Who's the guy could, who sold Victoria? No, you're Victoria's could Secret, I, the guy who sold the company for three million, and now it's like forty-five billion or whatever. Could I buy Runa back, but then I can't switch again until after because you, you wanted to, to buy again, like after I can't make any changes before the French. If I could buy Holger back with the stock, how about this? You can buy him, but then you sell your men's stock. For, you can't you can't buy a new men's stock after the clay season. So you can you can yeah, uh that's what's what it I called? Mean. Is you front it like or what's it called? It's it's a, a short need, stock, a short no, sale? You, yeah, or you need cash now, you know, like the cash oh, yeah. yeah, like or whatever <laughs> you're like yeah. JG Wentworth. Yeah, <laughs> <It's laughs> <cash> now. Now. <laughs> I watch TV. <laughs> so if you want to do that. You have full reigns, but that means you can't do it after the clay court season. You can't get because well, we wanted to buy again right before Roland Garros. It, uh, so, or oh yes, exactly yes. So, so you have to buy him now, so you can't buy again. Right. So I'll keep it as is. Yeah, I'll buy him back. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Who says I'm, it's I'm not t- exciting? This like I'm this playing game. with house money because Musetti beat Djokovic, so I'm feeling good. We're going to allow it. I'm going to hammer that. You bet, best believe in a month and a half. I'm going to talk up that win over Musetti. I don't care if Djokovic's arm was hanging on by like a sinew. It was a win for Musetti. Musetti did not want to win that match. He was choking like a dog in that last game, and he won it anyway. That's that's my stock. That's my investment. It paid off. It's I love it. Well, you know, again, with all that said, that's everything 
on-court drama, off-court drama in Monte Carlo. A shout-out to you, DK, for joining us to help break it all down. You mentioned you've got a story to file. What can we expect on Tennis.com at Baseline over the next few days? Oh, baby, I already filed it. I filed it at 7 in the morning <laughs> with the factual <laughs> inaccuracy right in the right in the abstract. But I fixed it while we were talking. So it's, it's, it's it was the second time in 2023 and the second out of three three masters. Just a little bit a little bit of a of a, a flattening of the of the narrative there from going right from Indian Wells into uh, Monte Carlo. But I also followed up on I did a comprehensive uh, look at the week that Dimitrov and Rublev had and all of the things that Rublev said about Dimitrov at the T- TC live desk earlier to just how beautiful he is. And he thinks he's beautiful too. And everyone thinks he's beautiful and he's in love with himself and everyone's in love with him. And listen, I wish those, I w- again, I wish those boys nothing but the best. I think uh, it's going to, I'll be at the wedding. I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be there to, to raise my glass, but um, yeah. yeah, some, some goofy stuff. And you know, we're um track, we're tracking the burgeoning modeling career of Arena Sabalenka as well. She's been serving some looks in Miami. I don't know what for, for what it's for. I don't know, but that's been, that's been a really exciting, uh, uh, a ship to see our, our our new Grand Slam champion really enjoying the fruits of her labor. The most angry I've ever been in a in like a you're just so wrong as it relates to tennis player doppelgangers. Two, my freshman year roommate from college, Ben Belzer, has been on the show. Love Benny, funniest guy I know. He told me I looked like Milos Raonic, and I almost fought him. I was like, "You shut your mouth." Um, but he just did not get under it. my skin. Um, thank you. Thank you. You disagree. Tell me you disagree. No, I said, I don't not see it, but it is. Oh, you... <laughs> I love you anyways. Yeah. It's the hair and the structure of the face and I'm a much better looking version. That's not fair. Milos is a good guy. I don't, I, I'm not going to judge Milos's looks. Second of all, well, I will judge Milos's looks. I think I'm better looking like, than Milos Raonic. Are you like a, like a nebbish Fanini? I'll take it. Someone was told me I looked a like bit. a. You know, we're not going to say my doppelgangers. We'll save that for a different show when it's the therapy session on the couch with DK, um, which is a podcast coming to you soon if Dalton Thieneman has any choice. Someone once told my older brother, who has the exact same cubish head and like fluffyish hair, that he kind of looks like Grigor Dimitrov. And I literally was like, you shut the fuck up. Like, in no circumstance is my older brother as good looking as Grigor Dimitrov. And, like, Eric had this little smirk on his face. And, like, look, Ruskins are good looking guys. Like, I got no shame in saying that. But is Eric Grigor Dimitrov good looking? Get out of town. Um, someone, someone has told me recently that I look like Diego Schwartzman. That's tightest. That's – no, you're much better looking. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um – I'm trying to think of what it, someone I was once. He's not going to listen to this, so I'll steal his story. Um, I mean, I was, he, we were in the elevator his freshman year of college. I was visiting him, and he was just sitting, Eric, in the elevator. And these two girls go in, and go, one goes, "Oh, you got to Eric, not to me. I wish it was to me." She, she goes, "Oh, you got a juicy booty," and it was just like, oh, "Okay, it's odd." Oh, it was just I was like, Eric. Not the same person who called him Grigor, because then he probably should have married that lovely woman. Um, but it was just, anyways. That's your Eric Ruskin check-in, in case you were curious, DK. Oh, something I love to know. That's just that's a, that's a great <laughs> something. I it's something I look for and something I appreciate. So I'm well, glad it's full to circle it's... because you mentioned you were a Gruskin brother, um, yeah. and so now you know you're. Well, older... well now you made it gross. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thanks a lot. <laughs> Give me your update. No. Eric goes through cycles like every other year he's in shape, if that makes sense. I actually think that's a great assessment, and I will bring that up to him because I think he'd laugh at that. 
Because like he goes one year on, one year off. He's in an in, he's in cycle right now. He's in shape for what it's worth. Anyways, there's your update on the physique of Eric Ruskin. Doesn't look like Rigor Dimitrov, but might be appealing to some. May or may um, not have a donkey booty to quote yeah. the Housewives of Atlanta. Kenny Moore. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, excuse me, Phaedra Parks. Kenny Moore's a stallion booty. Both, both, of which, both, both exercise videos now available on DVD. It's now Saturday. We could end today's show for the fantastic David Kane, who is always a pleasure to have join us here for the fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has what sort of an editing job to do, DK? Oh, he does a fuck of an editing job. Absolutely. Day in, day out for our fantastic friends, of course, at Tennis Point as well. Tennis-point.com, the promo code it is CR15. And from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? That when you go to sleep at night, it's because that's the break that I won. <laughs> and we Something will like see that. you all tomorrow. That was perfect. Thank you as always, DK. Spasiba <laughs> Bolshoi.